We are in a series on Ruth. We are in the third week of the four weeks on, on the book of Ruth. Uh, it's been encouraging to me because I've heard a bunch of people say, like, Ruth, seriously, come on. Like, everyone's read Ruth because it's one of those short books. Um, but uh, hopefully there's been some gleaning, some challenging of your soul, of your hearts. Um, and uh, so let me recap. If, if you have never read the book of Ruth or if you're not quite, it's been a little while and you can't remember, uh, the first two chapters basically capture that in about 1200 B.C., uh, in what the, what the Bible calls the time of the judges, uh, this, this woman Ruth, the Moabite widow, young woman, comes back to Israel from Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi is from Bethlehem and they have both been widowed while they've lived in Moab. And uh, they return back, and uh, it's, been, it's been a dark providence. It's been, it's been a frowning providence from God as they've experienced death and sorrow and loss. And as they re-enter, it tells us at the end of the chapter, after Ruth has made an incredible declaration of faithfulness, we find ourselves hearing that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Enter chapter 2. We find ourselves in chapter 2 experiencing a really incredible day for Ruth, where we get introduced to, to, to this exceptional woman in a much clearer way, and to this incredible man, Boaz. We see in their interactions something incredible, a, a, a productive, engaging woman who is, who, is both, um, who is both courageous and humble, who takes initiative, who's not afraid, and she's meeting up with this, connecting with this, and coming under the, the protection, the kindness, and the generosity of one Boaz. She went out that morning to find favor, and it says that she found favor, and the agent of favor was this man, Boaz. And so, in Ruth, we see this, um, this challenging reality of the ordinary being interwoven with the extraordinary of God, which is good news for all of us in the ordinary that you're living right now. That God is not primarily at work in the dramatic, but is primarily at work in that which is ordinary. So... In order to catch us up on what happens in chapter 3, Sarah Stedham, who's going to Hungary, is going to read chapter 3 for us. So you can pay attention on the screen. Sarah Stedham was going to read. Where are you going to read? <laughs> you got it? Microphone? Mike? Well, no, we... <clears throat> Live television, folks. Live television. What's up? <laughs> Ruth chapter 3. <clears throat> then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman who, that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the young, all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah. This is quite the chapter. There is a ton of stuff in here, and obviously we won't be able to cover all of it. Um, But in chapter 2, if you remember the end of chapter, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter two, uh, Naomi had received uh, the kindness, sto- the story of kindness that, uh, that Ruth had shared with her. And she said, just, just so you know, Boaz is one of our redeemers. And in order to understand what that means, uh, we have to understand two kind of key central Old Testament uh, realities, uh, a picture of how the Old Testament interprets two dynamics. The first of which is called the leveret vow or the leveret process comes from the word lever, not, you know, like wrong lever, not that kind of lever, but the Latin for brother-in-law. Um, and this was a, this was a law that, that regulated the marriage customs for a husband who died. There was a death within the family. And if that family framework had been affected, God had made provision for the widow and the continuation of the line so that it was not left up to chance. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, you'll see on the screen, explains exactly how this works. It says, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." Now, Ruth is Elimelech's daughter-in-law, which means that by default, she's brought into this leveret situation, this leveret process. But by being his daughter-in-law, she's also not mandated. She's not forced to have to step into the situation. And you can tell that because when Boaz has her come to him and she says, you are a redeemer, he, he compliments her. He said, blessed are you. This kindness is greater than the first you've shown. What he's saying is that I recognize that you don't have, you can go and marry some young dude. You can marry someone for money. You don't have to choose me. You can do as you please. There is no mandate. Therefore, your presence here at this threshing floor is an indication of your loving commitment to Naomi. Another commitment 
demonstration to Naomi. You, you did it first by the, the strong and powerful declaration when you were back in Moab of your faithfulness and commitment to her. And then you manifested it when you found yourself gleaning in the fields day after day, week after week, providing for this woman whom you love. You've been diligent and now you are finding yourself choosing a leveret marriage. Not running away or running after your own pleasures or your purposes. You're going after that which loves and honors another. The summary of what Boaz says is, Ruth, wow. Ruth is making good on her promise. And this book is a beautiful picture of commitment and faithfulness. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So let's go back to the beginning. We have this leveret situation, and then we have what's called the kinsman redeemer, which is probably what you're most familiar with. And the kinsman redeemer is not, is not connected so much to the issue of, of the line, of, a, of the line, the family line being continued, but it's connected to the reality of land and property. The kinsman redeemer, the word is actually goel. He had the responsibility to secure land for the family, to secure the land that belonged to that particular family. God's purpose in this was that he would preserve Israel in the land, that he would preserve family lines, and they would remain on that property that belonged to Israel. And so that which belonged to Israel remained that which belongs to Israel. Now, most of us are not property people, right? You're not like going around marking your territory going like, my land. Like, it's not happening probably. But everything was about land in those days, especially because for God, it was connected to promise. And so for the, the, the significance of why God is saying, you must maintain this, which belongs to Israel, to Israel, is for a very clear purpose. He's saying that this is to demonstrate the reality of my covenant with my people. Your purpose, Israel, is to be a declaration, to put on display the unilateral commitment that I, the God of Israel, have towards you. That's what you're about. So you must be in the land and remain that. So everyone who will see that will know that that is the covenant that I have with you. So we have Naomi right at the beginning of chapter three, and, and it's actually encouraging. We have this woman who at the end of chapter one was saying, don't call me, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. Life has dealt me bitter blows. I don't think God's favor has gone away from me. And we're now at the beginning of chapter three, which is about two months, maybe a little bit further than that later. And, and, and she has hope. She's someone who's making plans. You, you know you have hope when you're going and saying, okay, I'm trusting God for the future, that he has something that though I cannot see it now, it might be for my good. And so I'll plan and I'll start to dream. And some of her dreaming is, Ruth, I'm going to get you a husband. Naomi wants Ruth to be settled and, and secure. It's what she declared when she was back in Moab, when she said, hey, don't come with me. I got nothing to offer you. You go back and find yourself a husband, someone that you can be connected to, that can, you can grow a family with, that there can be security with. But Ruth had said no. And so now, out of maternal friendship, which is what we experience between these two, we have the echo of what she said. And she's saying, I'm going to find you a husband going to get for you a husband if I can. But this is a strange plan. I mean, right? What a strange plan. Have you read this with your like, you know, eight-year-old and tried to explain it? <laughs> no, do it tonight and just go, because you think I'm going to give you all the answers, because I'm not. <laughs> Commentators are going like, this is a strange plan. There's a lot of rationale about it. There's speculation. 
But it is, everyone agrees, whether you're in 1200 BC or you're today, this is a peculiar plan. Naomi, we want to say, what in the world are you advising Ruth to do? Now, let me take a little aside here. Let me remind you that when you're reading the Bible, that though all the scripture can be descriptive, not all the scripture is proscriptive. Okay? You know the difference? Now, I was a youth pastor for a while. Teenagers love to take passages of scripture, and it's not just teenagers, but we'll just blame them for right now. Teenagers love to take, sorry, teenagers, <laughs> love to take passages like this and go like, well, if it's good enough for Ruth, <laughs> hey, go find somebody I can uncover some feet, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, no, that is not the goal. This is not a model to be shared. This is not something to be pursued. And this is certainly not a model to be used as an excuse for sharing a bed, whether sexually or, or simply intimately with someone that you're not married to yet. So yes, this, uh, this may be a bad plan. It, it really may be a, or at least a not great plan, or it may be an uncertain plan so let me, let's look at two things in light of this plan. Two things that I want to hold in tension in light of what Naomi calls Ruth to. First is the good news that God uses even our wrong choices and our bad plans for our ultimate good. And you should just say amen because that is really good news. He uses your bad plans and your wrong decisions for your good. As Art said years and years ago, God wastes nothing and he weaves everything. And that's evidenced here for sure. But in tension with that or on the, same, on the opposite side of that same coin, the fact that God, this is Alisha Begg says this, the fact that God overrules even wrong mistakes for our good is a tribute to his glory. It's not a loophole for our rebellion. Let me say that one more time. The fact that God overrules even our wrong mistakes is a, as for our good is a tribute to his glory, not a loophole for our rebellion. And we're pros at that, right? I mean, read, read the story of Saul. Read, I mean, read many of the Old Testament characters. Oh, but Lord, I was just assuming. And we do the same. The other thing that's hard as we look at this particular story, it's hard for us not to, to overlay our, our 21st century issues on and to crowd this particular narrative. This is obviously peculiar, uncovering of feet and, and then there's some kind of covering of a garment later on or, or of wings. But it's almost impossible for us in our present day modern sensibilities not to overlay strong sexual or sensual imagery and understanding to this particular issue, to this particular scene. The idea that at the end of a particular night, this young woman who was perfumed left the next morning with a shawl full of six cups of grain, nothing having happened other than her being protected and sent off with a promise, is not the making of the blockbuster film. It isn't, is it? It's almost anticlimactic. And let's be honest, we have elevated romantic, erotic love to such a frenzied and supreme status that there is, I dare say, scarcely a more powerful and dominant value set in the Western culture than the idea of being swept up in some sensualized or sexualized 
reality and relationship unto consummation as quickly and as deeply and as fervently as possible in order for the relationship to actually have meaning and fulfillment. That's the narrative that we live under today. The notion of, of covenant, of, of waiting with a, a self-controlled purity and, and out of devotion and protection for the other person is, um, is something that we sometimes even joke about within the Christian community. Having taken, having taken grace and been like, well, we can wink at certain things. It's going to be okay. God forgives, right? And so to, to look at this scene and say, wait a minute, this ends with nothing but promise. It smells and looks like covenant. It, it's, it's foreign to us. I'm sure even as you read it, you find yourself going like, okay, there's this, this some stuff going on here, you know, but it's Bible cleaned up language. Let me just be really honest. The Bible is not clean up language. It puts some really graphic things out there. This is not primitive time. This is not a invitation to a greater desire of self-expression instead of the squelched duty life of the old days. No. There's an invitation to more. But, but Naomi is a very practical woman. She's a very practical lady. And she gives good, solid advice in one way. She says, wash, perfume, and, and, and get dressed. Dress up. Ruth, go ahead and manifest the good femininity, the good beauty that you really have. And by the way, this plays a very real part in courtship and in marriage. But it's one thing for a woman to make herself attractive, and it's another thing for her to make herself seductive. And, and both women and men know the difference. Ruth is not strutting her stuff. There's decorum and, and restraint here, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, which, which leads me to say, as a brother in Christ to you and as your pastor, ladies and sisters, it is a deeply good thing that you honor the femininity that God has gifted you with by making yourselves beautiful and attractive. It's part of the glory that God wants to display in each of you. And therefore, it is one of the primary avenues, the primary environments where Satan will come and seek to either silence and squelch or to distort and debase. Now, I know this is delicate ground, but I want to urge you to live lives that are displaying the beauty that God has given you as beauty, not seductiveness. And seductiveness either out of naivete or out of intentionality. And I would say, moms and dads, protect and care for your daughters. They may be mad at you. Let them be mad at you. Guard them. Protect them from themselves. No one out there will for you. Train your daughters to dignity. Well, she says in, to, to, to Ruth, okay, take note of where he's sleeping. You know, there's a whole story about, you know, he's going to be working and then he's going to be having a meal and then he's going to fall asleep. So take a note of where he's sleeping, which frankly, I think is probably just, you know, it's going to be dark. So you don't want to be uncovering the wrong guy's feet. You know, that seems pretty, pretty logical. It's just solid advice. Um, we don't need that kind of confusion right now. Um, and, and, and here's the, I think the most important line of this first section. He says, she says, and he will tell you what to do. 
and he will tell you what to do. I think this is where the whole point of what's going on hinges. It hinges on what kind of man Boaz is. Because Boaz could have responded in two pretty devastating ways. One, he could have responded by saying, what in the world are you doing here? He could have driven her out. I mean, he's, he's portrayed as a godly man who's, who's a, a God-saturated heart. And, and he could have said, what in the world? Are you trying to seduce me? Get out of here. She could have been rejected. And, and any of the credibility, her reputation with the city could have been marred. The other option is he could have taken advantage of the moment. He's a man. It's late. His heart is merry. He could have taken advantage of the situation that had been presented to him and he could have had sex with her. Those are two very real possibilities in light of what has presenting itself. She is clearly offering herself to him in a particular way. But that's not who Boaz is. That's not who Boaz is. This is why I believe that there is a tangible element of of trust in God being demonstrated by both Naomi and in turn by, by Ruth with this plan. Now, I'm not saying that I love the plan any more than I did a minute ago, but it is demonstrated and it is grounded in the demonstrated character and kindness of another. It is trusting God in light of what they've experienced and seen in another. But it's actually more because it's also demonstrating the reality of Ruth. Which again, Boaz and the fact that that's not who Boaz is tells me and reminds me that I display who I am and whose I am by the ways in which I live out the moments and days of my life. That our actions, that our words are a living declaration about what's true about us, right? Scripture says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what does it look like to other people when they hear you talk and act? What, what, what do they see? And, and what would it look like for us to be the kind of people, the kind of men and the kind of women that would have someone else say, and he will tell you what to do. She will tell you what to do. It shall be well. Well, now we have Ruth. Ruth does everything her mother-in-law says. Almost. She does everything her mother-in-law says. In the middle of the night, she comes, uncovers his feet, and she lays down. I'm thinking maybe a little, little breeze. Feet get cold. He wakes up, says he turns over, and there's this woman at his, at his feet. And he says, who are you? Which, by the way, tells us that he wasn't expecting Ruth there. Like, oh, about time, Ruth. No. Who are you? And she replies, I am Ruth your servant. And that's all she's supposed to say, right? And Naomi said, and, and, and he will tell you what to do. But, but see, now we get a sense of what's happening in Ruth. What does she say? She says, I'm going to keep talking. I've got more to say. Spread your wings over your servant. For you are a redeemer. Ruth goes off script. She doesn't wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She makes it clear why she has come. And by implication, she also makes it very clear why she has not come. I have not come to seduce you, Boaz. 
Oh, I've washed and I've perfumed and I've taken particular care with my dress. I am a feminine woman, but I am not here to use my seductive powers over you. I have come as a servant to humbly ask you a really bold question. That's why I'm here. And she says, will you spread your wings? Will you spread your garment? Or you spread the corner of your garment over me? And, and lots of discussion about what does that mean exactly? Again, you know, you're dealing with, you know, the juvenile, like corner of the garment. And, and, and it's not like that. Hebrew scriptures doesn't do that. It's not double entendre. Uh, it, it's very straightforward. But, but there's, a, there's confusion about this word because the word is, is wings. That's, that's, that's what the word is. And, and in the Old Testament, it's used about 34 different times. And, and of all but four, it, it's wings, like wings of a bird, wings of an angel. It's, you know, it's wings. Um, but uh, about four other times, there's, it seems from context that it could be the, the edge of the cloak or the corner of a cloak or the skirt is actually what uh, the King James Version says. But, uh, but I'm, I'm, with, I'm with John Piper on this because um, one of the things that this word elicits is is the, uh, the imagery that comes out of Ezekiel chapter 16, which is in the scriptures one of the most um, challenging, oh, not yet, um, is one of the, one of the um, is it gone? All right. I was just y'all watching the screen. Um, but aren't you excited? It's coming. Um, it, it's one of the most beautiful but also terrifying scriptures where, where God describes having come to this infant, this infant girl, and rescued her out of her lostness and hope, hopelessness, and having raised her up, having brought her up, it says this in verse, uh, in verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were of the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. And you became mine. This is not sexual language. This is covenant language. The spreading of the corner of the garment or spreading of the wings over is an articulation of that unilateral commitment by God to his people. This is why it would be mistaken to conclude that in this passage, Naomi and Ruth, Naomi is some conniving old woman who's trying to get a man for her girl and, 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 and that Ruth is some kind of a seductress who's trying to make sure she scores a guy. No, this is covenant language from one who, like Israel, was worthy. I'm sorry, from one who was unworthy. A Moabitess, poor, barren. She had children in 10 years. It's not a good streak. She's a widow. And just like the Ezekiel woman has come unworthy to the man who will indeed raise her up. But it also, and if you were paying attention last week, it also refers to another moment. Have we heard wings recently? Those of you here last week, remember when, when Boaz asked her, so, so, and when, I'm sorry, Ruth asked her, why are you showing me this kind of favor? Boaz's real answer is because you're the kind of woman who has put herself under the wings of the Lord. You found yourself taking refuge under his wings. Boaz, she's asking, will you continue? Will you continue to be a, a, an agent of covenant favor for me? Will you be the kind of person that I can take refuge in for my life? I'm identifying God's favor with you. And I'm asking you to step in willingly to participate in living out both that grace 
and that power of God in my life. Marriage time. In marriage, um, we're instruments of sanctification. The purpose of marriage is, is to participate in our spouse's becoming the full expression of what God had in mind when he made and redeemed them. If you got married because of what the other person was going to do for you, then you entered in without realizing that that's not God's heart for marriage. You're in good company and you've got good grace for you. But that's not what marriage is. The marriage desire from God is, as Tim Keller articulates in the meaning of marriage, he says it this way, in sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is more fundamentally action than emotion. But in talking this way, there is a danger in fa falling into the opposite error that characterizes many ancient and traditional societies. It is possible to see marriage as merely a social transaction, a, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe, and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life, and so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interest. By contrast, contemporary Western societies, like right now, made the individual's happiness the ultimate value, and so marriage became primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible sees God as the supreme good. Sorry. But God, the Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual and not the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feeling and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. If you are married, if you are desiring to be married, if you are about to be married, we are, as spouses, agents of grace and favor for one another. Marriage is not primarily an avenue to have my needs met, but to champion and engage the flourishing of the other. Marriage is my life for yours, not your life for mine. Ruth's invitation, her proposal, which is exactly what it is, at the threshing floor, it's just that. She's saying, Boaz, will you give who you are and what you have for my protection, my flourishing, and my honor? Will you be that kind of man? And, and by the way, you already are. You, you already are a redeemer. It's already true of you. This is an offer for a covenant. And clearly, he was glad she asked. It seems as though Boaz may have been thinking about this when he associated his favor and, and the favor that he was showing her to, to God's favor by being under his wings. It's as though he had subtly linked his willingness and favor to God showing her favor. And he saw himself as such. And he says, I recognize you're the kind of woman that takes refuge under God's wings. And I want to be a man who gets to have you come under my wing too. I want to participate with God in what he has for you. So, loved ones, to the degree that you have taken refuge under God's wings and that you're securely resting in the indefatigable, unalterable favor 
and the humility of repentance that comes before God, you can humbly repent with your spouse for all the ways in which you are not living out the my life for yours, my life exists for yours. And you can begin to ask God or you can continue to ask God for the kind of grace and power to increase, increasingly do so. That your transformation would be one of, it is my life for yours. I have been given so that you may flourish. That's why I said I do. And begin choosing in tangible, wi- tangible ways with, with prayers on your lips, action that would demonstrate that. So, If you're married, if you're about to be married, want to be married, sacrifice for each other, honor one another, serve one another, support one another, encourage one another, respect one another, use words of praise about one another, listen to one another, invest in one another, forgive one another. Meet each other's needs as you can and as God enables you. Pursue one another. Some of us are here waiting for our spouse to start doing something so that then we will start doing something. As soon as she, well, if he begins, well then, if, um, if you're in a place in your marriage and it seems impossible to have that kind of disposition. That the idea that, that, that their life could possibly be for you is like, <laughs> that's never gonna happen. That's not happening and I don't ever see it actually changing in any particular way. Um, good news. There is good news. There's nowhere else to go now. So, it isn't so. God's invitation to you is to actually move towards him that you may become that kind of person. It, it, I remember reading, I think it was, a, it might have been a meeting of marriage, where, where, uh, where Tim invites people who are struggling to love their spouse. He says, he says, to rehearse in your heart the reality that I belong to a Christ who did not hang on the cross because I was worthy, but in order to make me worthy. Not because I was lovely, but in order to make me lovely. Loved ones, that, that's what it means to belong to Jesus. Is that we sacrifice and serve and die so that the other person becomes lovely. And in so doing, we become beautiful, significant, transformative. That's what marriage looks like. Desiring, willing, acting towards the flourishing and transformation of the other. Ruth says, spread your garment over me. And, and, and Boaz with, uh, again, Boaz's first words, bless you. Like, it seems like the first thing he's going to say, other than who are you, is I've got blessing on my lips. That's one of the things that shocked me about the study of Ruth is realizing he's the kind of man who when he experiences or sees something goes, oh, I got blessing. This is the first thing that comes out. May may, may good be upon you. May, May the blessing of the Lord be a part of your life. He's seeing it and therefore he's declaring it. Seems to be the outpouring of his heart. And he says, you've made this kindness greater than the first. And I said that earlier. He says, you, you've chosen to manifest the deep commitment and love that you have for Naomi by not chasing after what you would choose for yourself, by, by submitting yourself to a, to a leveret obligation that is not an obligation for you out of love 
and longing and desire to honor the family line, to make a great story for someone else, to bring redemption into the lives and the, and the narrative of another. He's saying to Ruth, I know this is not an ideal fit. I'm an, I'm an older dude. But you've chosen. And I honor that. You are being guided, it would seem, by a God-infused set of values and desires and not by a demand for your own satisfaction. And I honor that. Which is one of the reasons why I think the picture of, of Naomi and Ruth in, in the book of Ruth is, is incredible. Because why is Ruth at the threshing floor that night? Ruth is at the threshing floor that night because Naomi loves Ruth and wants Ruth to be cared for. She wants her to be provided for. She wants her to be nurtured. She wants her to have flourishing. Why is Ruth at that threshing floor that night? Because, because Ruth wants for Naomi to be provided for. She wants her to be protected. She wants her to have flourishing. You see, in, in the same way that we were just describing the reality of, of marriage, it's true in friendship. The kind of devoted friendship love that focuses primarily on the good of the friend probably at real cost to self. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is to have a vision for another, for the one that God has given us near, spouse or friend, that they would become what God has in mind for them and, and us to our cost, that we would participate in that. Well, Boaz looks at her and says, now, my daughter, do not fear. Ruth, you don't have to be worried. I'm neither going to reject you nor take advantage of you. You are in good hands. You have come into the presence of one whose life is for you as your life is for Naomi. I will do for you as you ask. And by the way, Ruth, everyone talks about you, and they think you're an honorable woman. The blessing is on his lips. One of the things that happens oftentimes when I'm doing, sometimes when I'm doing like brief marital counseling with folks is I'll ask them, I'll tell them, ask them to talk to me a little bit about uh, say, what, what, what happened in the situation and, and what, did you saw something good in your spouse? It's been a while and you, you saw something really powerful in them. And the first question I ask, and if any of you have been with me, I usually ask, I go like, did you tell him? Did you tell her? You saw this really powerful, beautiful thing. You, you heard about from someone else that they were, did you tell him? On your lips was there the desire and, and the movement towards saying, I want to bless you. That's what Boaz does. He says, let me, let me tell you what is said about you. Let me tell you what I see in you. And then, um, and then there's like this record scratch moment. Verse 12 happens and it's like, yes, you know what? I am a redeemer. Um, yet there, there's one who's nearer than me. And, you know, this is not how the story's supposed to go. Like, wait, what? Wait, who is this guy? And where has he been? I mean, she's been in the field, the Boaz, and like everything's working out, and suddenly it's like, the story's falling apart. This guy's probably a schmuck, you know? Like, he's probably some jerk. Isn't that what we think? It's like, Boaz, he's awesome. You don't want that guy? Who is he? That's not who Boaz is. He says, there is one who's nearer to you, but I want to be very clear. If he will not, I will. I will redeem. And so he says, remain, remain tonight. 
Let me, um, let me bring about both a safety for you until morning. And that first light, the first thing I'm going to do is pursue the kind of loving relationship and protection and provision for your sake, not for mine. Now, you know, we can, we can infuse all kinds of, of, of romance or of longing that they've been, you know, she's been gleaning and her eyes been catching Boaz. She's like, sup, you know, you know like it's been this really kind of beautiful thing. He brings her some water and it's fresh and, you know, like we can do all that if we want. But the bottom line is this, even if that's not the case, she has expressed a desire to be a companion to him. It would appear that he's not married, to be someone who's going to walk with him, that they have common values. And his first words are, you know what? I want to make sure that you're cared for. And, and I also want to honor and be under God. I'm coming under God's wings in this. I will redeem you, he says. And then he sends her home full. Six scoops of barley in her shawl. She came, she came there empty. She came to Bethlehem empty. And he has now sent her home with is a basically a grain-shaped engagement ring, it would appear. She's got a full load. She's rejoicing. Now, as we read this story, we get near to Ruth and, and to Boaz. Can't help but see someone else, can you? It's impossible for us not to see in the types, both in Ruth and in Boaz, something about a story about another Definitely it's something to emulate, but it captures the, the truth and the beauty of the fact that the, all of scriptures are pointing to Jesus. And Ruth is one of those books where you just don't have to look very hard. It's right there. As, again, Alistair Begg said, he said, Boaz is a foreshadowing of our kinsman redeemer. He became one with us except for sinfulness that he may redeem us. And so here we get to see as Ruth casts herself at the feet of Boaz, so we cast ourselves at the feet of Christ. As Ruth depended on Boaz's mercy, so we depend on the mercy of Christ. As Ruth was covered by the corner of the garment of Boaz, so we are covered by the corner of the garment of the Lord covering over our sin through his sacrifice for us and welcoming us with steadfast love. As Ruth goes up the road, burdened by the gracious gifts and benefits of Boaz, so we go up the road, having been made aware of the glorious provisions we have from God in Christ. They're yours, you know. As Ruth comes to Boaz as a penniless alien, so we come to Christ as, frankly, penniless enemies and aliens. As Ruth takes Boaz to be his own, to be his bride, so Christ has come and made us his own, his bride. And as Boaz promises before God to redeem Ruth, and with that, all the loss and the death that has come before, so in Christ, Jesus has made good on his promise before God by redeeming us. And then one day, he will indeed bring the end of all loss through death. This is a real story. This isn't some fiction, some passe. No, it's a real story. And, and because of it, 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 uh, it begs the question for us. Actually, it begs two different questions. One is, have I cast myself at the feet of Christ? Have you? Have you cast yourself at the feet of Christ? Giving yourself no other option but the, 
fact that he must come through, he must receive you, he must say, I will redeem. There is no other hope. If not, then today. Today, find yourself casting yourself at the feet of Christ saying, I cannot, but you have. He is willing and he is able. But also, those of us who have been united to God, with God in Christ, are, are we seeking to exhibit the kind of dealings with others in our marriages, in our, in our friendships, with the spirit of generous love that we witness in Boaz, that we witness in Ruth, and that like no other was exhibited in Christ on the cross. You know, Bible doesn't say, and this is love, that, that Boaz chose Ruth and was, showed his favor. No. And this is love that, that Ruth, man, she sacrificed for Naomi. No, nope, that's not what it says. It says, this is love, that he laid down his life for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And because he's laid down his life for you, because all is yours in Christ, and loved ones, you can lay down your life for your spouse, for your friends, for your coworkers, for people you don't like. It's in you. The life of Christ which hung on the cross is in you. You know that, right? It's in you. And what we get to do is we get to let it out by trusting him that it is the most truest, powerful thing in us. And then the world around us goes, everyone in town thinks you are an honorable person. And grace becomes easy upon you. It fits the grace of Christ, which we experience here as we come to the table. Being reminded each week that because of this, you need to come and you need to receive. If you want to walk away full, you must receive. If you're empty this morning, come and receive. God wants to do things in you. Come and experience the gospel through the elements this morning. Let's pray. Father, oh, how you love us. Oh, how you love us. You have not left us without hope, and then you've given us um, a, a picture, imagery, a, a, a type, a shadow in Boaz and Ruth that, that helps us put even more flesh on what it looks like for us to know that we have been redeemed, pursued by you. To know what it means to look like someone who, having been redeemed and pursued, pours that out on other people out of generosity and courage and love. Lord, make us the kind of people that are that kind because of the kindness of God for us. Heal us, Lord, in all the places and all the marriages that are struggling where they can can't see the good in the other. Lord, will you give us eyes to see what you see? And in so doing, will you give us courage to step in and participate with you in making that a reality for your glory, for their good first, and for our joy too. We are hopeless without you. We have, no, we have no ability. None of our efforts will come to anything without you. And so we throw ourselves upon you. We come to you with nothing and ask that you would fill us, that you would give us all that we need in Christ Jesus, which you promise through your spirit. So that we seize hold of. And as we take these elements, we ask that as we take them into our body, that you would infuse them, not them, but that you would infuse that reality into our heart, that we would live this everywhere we go to the glory of your name. We pray that in Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. Come and receive. You need it. Come and receive.